Thank you for tuning in to our Bear Creek AG podcast. You are about to listen to our weekly Bible study with Pastor Tony. Thanks for joining in. All right, so uh, let us begin tonight. We're going to be picking up in Hebrews chapter 5. Um, just as a refresher, as a reminder, uh, as I was saying a little bit earlier uh, before we really started, uh, the first four chapters of Hebrews, the writer is, is it, it, I don't want to say it's foggy. It's almost, it's almost as if some of the things he's saying to the, to the reader doesn't relate to us. It, it does, but it doesn't from a cultural standpoint because he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were struggling with, do I keep walking in, in the ways of Christ? Remember, they didn't have the Bible like we do today. I need you to understand that. They, were, they had letters that Paul had written many of the churches, and they, they had church leaders that were apostles who, who, had, who had walked with Christ. To be an apostle, you had to have walked with Christ and, and lived and ministered with Christ. So they had the words, uh, uh, per se, from, from uh, people's accounts of what Jesus said, but they didn't have the written words, so they were struggling with do we continue down this path of following Christ or do we go back to Judaism which was about having a priest a high priest in this case that would go before the Lord annually on the day of atonement and make sacrifice for our sins and also we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight because he gets into the high priest role of Christ uh, and also makes other sacrifices for us so from us that doesn't make sense because we're not looking at this from a point of being a Jew we 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 if you're saved if you're a Christian you didn't unless you're uh, a an actual Jew today that participated in Orthodox Judaism, that doesn't make sense to you. So what you have to do is put it in relation to what were you before you was a Christian? What religion were you before you accepted Christ? Now, the reality of it is, you say, well, I didn't have a religion. I was lost. For many of us, we were lost. But that is a form of religion, if you think about it. So put yourself in their boat and say, okay, this path that, that Christ calls me to, it's, it's alienating me. That's what these Jews were talking about. They had lost their place of worship. They could no longer go into the temple uh, and, and worship. Matter of fact, Christ pretty much said, and through the Apostle Paul said, you don't have to go in there. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. You no longer have to sacrifice animals for the remission of sin. You no longer have to go to the priest and confess your sins, so to speak. All right? And, and so they, they struggled with it. They, they lost families. If, if they converted to Christianity, to the way, and their families were still uh, practicing Judaism, they were alienated. We don't see that as much today, but they were cast out. There was a time in my, in my childhood where you could, be cast, you could be cast out of a family environment if, if, you, if you gave your heart to Christ because, oh, we don't want any part of that, you know. And, and in a way, that you may not be rejected by your family or your friends, but the reality of it is you no longer fit in with them. You do, but let's admit it. If you've given your heart to Christ and you're still hanging around with people who are unsaved, and don't get me wrong, don't mean we shouldn't witness to them. We can be a witness to them. But there should be a little bit of uncomfortability when they start doing the things that you used to do that you know you ought not to do anymore. And so that's what these, understand, that's what these people are going through. And that's, what we, that's how we relate it to our lives today. Now, if you are what we'd call a seasoned, uh, tough old bird in, in, in the walk with Christ, that, that is very... Uh, alien to you because that was a long time ago. But I can remember, uh, although I was raised in a preacher's home, I can remember feeling ostracized at school because of my faith. Uh, and I would do things to draw attention to me that would be probably considered ungodly because I wanted to fit in, see. And so that's, that's, that's part of the struggle here. So I, I just kind of want to back, backtrack a little bit because the first four chapters as I was looking over it and, and not struggling but trying to bring it alive to us, it's like, how does that relate to us? And, and I just want to remind you, it does relate to us. So let's begin in chapter 5, verse 1. Hopefully I'll finish with this tonight because I think we're going to really start diving into where the writer's trying to go here in Hebrews. Hebrews. So let's read it. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. There again, bring your attention to the fact that he's talking to Jews who understand the role of the high priest, and he's explaining, 
This is what the high priest, they would understand this. To be a Jew, to actually be participate in Judaism, they knew that this is the role of the high priest. Matter of fact, at a very young age, as you're indoctrinated into Judaism, you knew the role of the high priest. It was a very important role in worship and, and, and walking in forgiveness of your sin. Verse 2, he is able, talking about the high priest, to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Talk about the role of the high priest. Since he himself is subject to weakness. Key there. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for what? His own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when, when called by God just as Aaron was. So God establishes both the priesthood and the office of the high priest. When he, he established this back in uh, Exodus in the, in the days of, of Moses. Actually, the chapter is Exodus 28, if you kind of want to go back and read that on your own, and in the following chapter. So God establishes the writer to the Hebrews. What he's done, he's neatly in a way right here, in just a f- two, three, four verses, has summarized the work of the high priest. He's saying this is basically what the high priest does. I mean, it's a lot more detailed than that, but this is pretty much what he does. He, that is that he makes offerings, both gifts and sacrifices, for the sins of the people. And the primary job of the high priest was to officiate these offerings, these sacrifices, either directly or through subordinate uh, members of the priesthood, lower-ranking priests, and two. So ideally, the high priest was more than a meat cutter. If you know anything about the, the sacrifice, you brought a live lamb... In, in, the, in the Old Testament, and the priesthood and the high priest, they would go and they would literally cut the throat, they would bind it to the altar of offering, and they would cut the throat of the animal and let the animal bleed out. Okay? Then he would take and he would, depending on the offering, would divide up the meats, the parts of the body, and the priest would get part of it. As a matter of fact, the priest could not own land, if you remember right. They were the only tribe that was not given an inheritance because the Lord says, I'm your inheritance. I'm, your, I'm the watcher in here. You're going to serve me. And so they didn't go out and normally get normal jobs. They, they ministered in the temple day and night. And there had to be a lot of them because a lot of people would come and make sacrifices. And so part of, depending on the sacrifice, part of the, the offering would become their portion. Anytime you hear about the inscription, your portion, the portion, we even sing a song, I forget the song, but they're talking about he is my portion. They're talking about Jesus and talking about the sacrifice. And so with that, we, we see this role, and it was more than just uh, cutting up an offering to make a sacrifice. He also had to have compassion on those who are ignorant or gone astray and minister the atoning sacrifice with the love of the Father, okay, with the love of, of the heart for the people. Um, in this ideal, the high priest uh, had the compassion because why? Why would the high priest have, based on what the writer of Hebrews just said, has, has, did any of y'all read ahead, by the way, in chapter 5? Okay, good. Based on that scripture, why, why do you think the, the, the high priest could relate to the people? It's right there in the scripture. But why? Be critical of the scripture. How would the high priest, why would he be compassionate towards the people? That's right. Absolutely. It, it just said he would have compassion on them. Why? Because he had to make atonement for himself. He understood what they were going through. You know why I have compassion for you as the flock? Because I face the same things y'all face. I know how hard it is to be a follower of Christ. I know how hard it is to be a godly husband and a godly father in this world. I know how hard it is to, to make the choice to follow Jesus. I know how hard it is to make the choice to do the right thing when doing the right thing doesn't benefit me. I understand that. I understand the temptations that you go through every day because I'm no different than you are. Now, as we mature, we should be able to withstand those more, but I get it. I understand what it's like to eat one piece of pizza and desire that second piece of pizza, right? As I joke about my eating habits. I understand. In the same way, that's what Jesus, uh, or the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He, he, he is to have compassion because he should understand that himself is also subject to the same weakness as those that he's making sacrifice for. This is important as we get to talk about Jesus as the high priest. He's, he's setting his case for these people, okay? 
God made specific commands to help the high priest to minister with compassion. And the breastplate of the high priest, anybody know anything about the breastplate of the high priest? Maybe you don't know in the Old Testament. They actually had to wear a, 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 a breastplate. And on these breastplates, anybody know what was on the breastplate? Anybody remember your Old Testament history? There was 12 stones. And what was neat, if you really go back in this, God would speak to the high priest through these stones. They would actually light up. Talking about science fiction, that went, before there was science fiction. They'd actually, but on those were the 12 names of the 12 tribes. He also, on that one, the straps, on one side of the straps, there was the six names. And on the other side of the strap, on the shoulder, was the other six names. So, in essence, what God, and God, if you look at the Old Testament, and true in the New Testament, there's a lot of symbolism. God is getting a message across. Part of that to the high priest was he always wanted the, on the heart and on the shoulders of the high priest, he wanted the high priest to remember who he ministered to. He wanted the, the, the 12 tribes, the people, to be on his heart and on his shoulder because he literally was God's representative to the people and he was their representative of God and he would make sacrifice. He was the only one once a year, the high priest, who could go behind the veil and make atonement for the sins of the people. Anybody else would die. See? And so with that, that, like I said, we don't get that because we're on this side of, of, of Christ. But I think we need to, re, it's important we understand this as he makes this case for Christ being our high priest. The intention was to stir the compassion of the high priest, remind him what his, his, uh, his responsibility was to God and to the people. God also made specific commands to help the high priest serve uh, the high priest served knowing that he was also subject to weakness. Like I said, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to sacrifice for himself first. He dare not go behind the veil if he hadn't purified himself and made his atonement for himself. Otherwise, when he went back there, he would die. Anybody know the custom of the day, what they would do with the high priest before he went behind the veil? Tie a rope behind his, around his leg and they'd put a bell on his leg. Why? If he died because he had not made atonement for his sins and entered into the presence of God, now there's a, I mean, think about that. How, much, how powerful is the sacrifice of Christ for us that we could boldly approach God in His holiness now, right? But before then, we could not. And they would literally tie a rope and a bell, and if they ever heard that bell stop ringing on the Day of Atonement, they'd pull them out because they could not go beyond the veil. So he had to do that if he did not make it uh, and, and purify himself and make atonement for himself. So he had to do all of that. And that, that's what God was doing. He was reminding the high priest of his role and the importance of it. The high priest was also, and I know this is a lot of Bible history, but I hope you're okay with this. I think this is great. It helps bring the Old Testament back to life when we read the Old Testament as well. But the, he, had, he was taken from the community of God's people, but he was not chosen by God's people. How did the high priest earn, or not earn, that's the wrong word. How did, I, how did the high priest become the high priest? Anybody know? Come on, come on, Bible scholars. He was chosen by God. Okay, how was he chosen by God? In the original institution of the, of the priesthood, where did they come from? The it came from the first, the tribe of Levi, but not all Levi's were priests. They served in the temple, but they weren't priests. It actually came from the family of Aaron and Aaron's family, uh, which was also Moses' family. I wrote down their name here because I did not know this until I did my, my check. Uh, but um, uh, uh, Kohath, K-O-H-A-T-H, was the family that Aaron and Moses came from. So what God said was when he established the, the priesthood and, and leading the people out, using Moses to lead the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. I mean, you talk about symbolism. I, we don't have time to go there, but think about the symbolism. What does Egypt represent for us today? Bondage, sin, right? What does the Red Sea represent to us today? Deliverance, see? And so, so we see that God delivered them from the bondage of slavery to us is sin today. He, he not only delivered them very, but He delivered them from the hand of their enemy, which for us today would be Satan, through the Red Sea. Then He brings them to the mountain of God and He presents the law to them. You see, the I hate to say symbolism because it's more than symbolism, but for us today it's symbolism because Christ came to fulfill all of that. He became the ultimate sacrifice, the Passover lamb, that the death angel passed over in Egypt. He became that. He, he didn't do away with the law, but he came and 
fulfilled the law, made the law perfect for us. I hope you're okay with this. I know we're not we're in Hebrews and we're not quite moving forward, but this this I love this aspect of how the word is it shakes hand, as we like to say in the network world. It shakes hand, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. And and so from there, when he gave the law, he says, from your family, Moses, is 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 from your tribe, which he was a tribe of Levi, is where the is where the the the, the tribe of Levi is going to be the servants, and of the family of the tribe of Kohath, which is Aaron and Moses' family, is where the high priest. So the people did not choose the high priest. God did. It was a chosen of that family. Uh, and it usually fell on the, the oldest son of whoever, boom, boom, boom. In the case of Aaron, two of his sons brought false fire or strange fire into the... I know y'all probably don't know that story. It's a great story. And God struck them dead. Their responsibility was keep the fire going in the, in the altar, uh, keep the incense going, and not to let it go out. It went out. So they, the fire in the temple, when, when, when the tabernacle was built in the, old, in, in, in the uh, wilderness, the first temple, which was a, a movable temple under Moses' leadership, when, when it was ready to go, God sent the fire and lit the altar. It wasn't lit by man. When Solomon built the permanent temple... In, in, in Jerusalem, God sent the fire. Okay? I know I'm chasing a rabbit here, but this comes to life. I love this. It's, and then two of two Aaron's sons brought false fire because they let it go out. And God said, you won't have that. You're dead. Okay. Message for another time. All right. So what am I saying? The principle is that no man takes his honor to himself. You didn't say, I want to be high priest. You didn't say, I want that role. See? No, it was, it was not. It was, it was, you couldn't do that. The office of high priest was nothing to aspire or to campaign for. It was given by right of birth and thereby chosen by God. It was an honor no man could take to himself. That's important as we continue in chapter 5, okay? So, I said a lot there real fast. Hope you got that. Let's continue on. All right, verse 5. In the same way, that same way of what? As the high priest was not something you, you, you aspire to, not something you could earn. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Well, wait a minute. He's a son of God. He did not take that on himself. But God said to him, quote, You are my son. Today I become your father. So God declared Jesus. And by the way, that's an Old Testament prophecy. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to jump into the order of Melchizedek, okay, because I don't want to blow your minds. We're going to get into that more in chapter 7 in two weeks, hopefully, Lord willing. Okay, so don't get caught up in that. That's an Old Testament high priest in the days of Abraham. Just know that. But there was an order. It speaks quite often about this. Before there was an order of the high priest, this guy was considered a high priest before God. There's a reason for it. We'll get into that in chapter 7. All right? Uh, based on the Old Testament requirements, let me ask you a question. From what you know about what we already discussed... Why was it different or maybe difficult for the Jewish people in the New Testament to accept Jesus as their high priest? Any ideas? Why, based on what we just talked about, would they have a hard time in, in the readers of Hebrews having a hard time? Just throw some things out based on what you, we just discussed. Mine wasn't based on what we just discussed. So that... All right, well, go ahead. I'll let you speak. Well, they were waiting. They were thinking God was going to come in on a white horse. Right. But these guys had, re, had accepted Christ as Savior, so there had to be some aspect that they believed Him uh, to be this, the, the Messiah. So based on the Old Testament, the requirements of the Old Testament high priest, I, I want you to get your thinking on, guys. I told you, I'm going to treat this as a class, like you're in school. All right. Based on what knowledge you know, use your critical thinking. We just read, why would it have been hard for them to accept Jesus as high priest? It wasn't in his lineage. What tribe did he come from? Judah. Okay? So he didn't come from not only the tribe, he didn't come from the family that Aaron and Moses came from. Okay? What else? How about this? Jesus never ministered in the temple like the Levites ministered. That was a big deal. I, obviously he wouldn't because he went from the tribe of Levi, but just think about that for a minute. He had never served... Uh, any practical ministry in the temple. He, he confronted, if anything, what did he do? He confronted the religious structure instead of joining it. He, he, was, he wasn't anti-temple. He was anti-political temple. He was anti... What was he against in the temple? 
what it become, the tradition, the money changing. It became anything but what the It was originally a, a house of prayer. He says, my father's house will be a house of prayer. Did they pray in the temple? Absolutely. When they made permission for sin, when they did fellowship, it was, what is prayer? It's fellowshipping with God. It became anything but true fellowship with the father. And he was anti-organization when it came to that, okay, institution. The office was gained through what? To become a high priest, to become part of the Sanhedrin, it was all done through what? Intrigue and politicking amongst corrupt leaders. It became a corrupt system. Okay? Jesus did not make himself the high priest, okay? Just like he was declared to be the son, he was declared to be the high priest forever. So there's some commonality there, but it wasn't from the, the lineage or from the tribe of Levi. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that he was not a priest like Aaron. Think about that when it comes to his high priest role. He is better than Aaron in that Jesus did not have to atone for his own sin first. I mean, it's powerful when you think about how Jesus fulfilled this role, how he's appointed by God, and how he is the perfect high priest. Unlike Aaron, Jesus will be priest forever. His priesthood is unending. Even when we get to heaven, even with the new heaven and new earth, Jesus will not stop. We don't need him in that role anymore. But Jesus will not stop fulfilling the, the, the office of prophet and, and the office of, of, uh, of uh, high priest or the office of savior. He will continue to hold those roles. They won't be the same then because we won't need a prophet, the role of prophet, nor will we need the, pro the role of a high priest. But he will still be our savior. Does that make sense? So it was a struggle for these folks. It was, it was, it, it, it'd be like, ah, I'm trying to find a, a, a good analogy. Well, just take what you believe about Jesus as somebody coming in and telling you something totally different than what you believe. It would be a struggle. It would be a struggle. Or if you're, think about when you were, uh, Unsaved, and you was living your life the way you want to, and, and if, if Christianity was, was uh, strange to you or unlearned by you, something you'd never... It, it's, it's a different way of thinking. It would be a challenge. It would be a real challenge. So uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't turn back. Jesus fulfilled this role as high priest for us. Go ahead, John. On the Sabbath, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Yeah. Well, because the law said on the Sabbath you don't do anything, you don't work. Matter of fact, you give your animals, you know, your beasts a burden to break. You wouldn't do that. But he went and he healed somebody, and and, and they were just they were trying to find all the Sanhedrin were doing, the Pharisees were doing, was trying to find a reason to debunk his claim to being the Messiah. Um, you know, and 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 what did he say? This man was not made for the Sabbath. Now, I believe in the Sabbath. I believe you need a Sabbath. You need a day of rest. You do. And, and take that day and remember, make it holy. Remember the Lord's day dedicated to that. Um, we, we no longer celebrate that or honor that or recognize that on Saturday because of the New Testament model. It's now the first day of the week, but it's still a Sabbath. It's not about the legality of the day on what day of the week. It's more about the fact that Jesus, God said you need a break. And so we know that the Sabbath, we were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. It's a gift from God for us. Um, and so they were just trying to find a way because Jesus at that point was, was they were losing control of the people. When Jesus went through and turned the table over. Yeah, he did it twice, yeah. That was not uh, the temple of God. That was a different temple. No, that was the temple of Jerusalem. That was the temple. I did not ever, never had that together. I was just yeah. Jesus went in there, and what they had was they had they had, if you couldn't if you if you needed to exchange money currency maybe you you from a different you could you could exchange it or if you needed to buy a sacrifice because you weren't you know things changed you weren't a shepherd you'd go you'd go buy a turtle dove whatever your sacrifice whatever you could afford but they were taking advantage of the people they that that was the issue it wasn't the fact that they were offering this service it's the fact that they've taken advantage of the people. And, and so he came in there and turned the tables over and got a whip and drove them out. Now, that wasn't the high priest. That wasn't in the holy place. Obviously, it wasn't in the holy place. That was in the, the outer court area before you'd get in there. Yeah, because Solomon's, and actually this would be called Herod's temple. Solomon built a temple. We know the Babylon. Boy, I'm really into Bible history tonight, right? The, 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 the Babylonians came in and basically the second time they conquered Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls or the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. Then when that was rebuilt 70 years later, that's when Ezra and Nehemiah come along and start rebuilding it. 
that was a t- but then Herod came and it's called Herod's temple and he added onto it. So this is a this wasn't a part of the original model. This was part of God's model. This was added on and there's several courts added on. There's a court called the woman's court where the women could go cuz women couldn't go to the temple. Sorry ladies. But that had kind of changed, and so they had a women's. They still couldn't go into the holy place to make sacrifice. Anyways, I'm really getting off tag there. But yeah, he went into the actual Herod's temple, which was expansion of the temple that Solomon built and was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and the, and, and the Israelites. And he went in there, in, in there, and he sure did. He turned those, in that outer court, he turned those uh, tables over, and he drove them out with a whip, absolutely. And that's where he said, my father's house will be a house of prayer, a house of, of worship, a house of Communing with God, fellowshipping. No, he he did that. I don't think there was a. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's when he left there after that that he told his disciples this temple would be torn down and in three days it'd be it'd be rebuilt. And of course, he's speaking of himself, of himself at that point. So, all right, we all good. I'm sorry if I'm really going fast. I really don't know why because I've not. I, well, I did too, have two cups of coffee this morning about 10, 30, and 11 o'clock. So maybe that's the caffeine still kicked in. All right. Am I going too fast? Any questions? Let me stop. Any questions about any of this? I don't want to call people out, but, uh, you know, you've you got questions. Please don't hesitate. This is a learning environment. I want you to ask questions. All right. Then let's pick up, uh, where do we leave off? Verse 5? 7. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Oh, that's powerful. I'm going to talk a little bit about that on Sunday. Uh, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. There's a lot there. The agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane proved he struggled. I want you to understand that. Proved he struggled with the difficulty of obedience. We never think about that, do we? He struggled with, with the difficulties of obedience. Yet, he obeyed perfectly. Say that again. He struggled with the challenge of being obedient. It's one thing to be obedient when, when what you're doing blesses you, benefits you, right? Come on. It's something else when walking in obedience to the Lord is actually going to be what we perceive to be detrimental to us in one way or another. He struggled with that, but yet what? He obeyed perfectly. The fact that he struggled in the garden answers the question, how can this glorious enthroned Jesus, our King, know what I'm going through down here? Well, he knows very well what you're going through down here, right? He knows. Go ahead, Brother Ben. He did for Jesus what the same thing he does for us in our struggles. Absolutely. They're there to minister. I say it all the time. I love the term. It's a weird way of saying it. I heard this term many years ago. Employ your angels. Employ. In other words, when you, when you deploy your, your troops, same way, employ. Put them to work. We don't pray to angels. We pray for God. But then we allow the angels to minister to us. Right? They're, they're warring angels. The spiritual battle, we forget that. We got in this discussion two weeks ago about angels. I hope to do maybe a study when we get done with this on angels, kind of leading me to do that because there's a lot of questions about angels. Uh, we could probably handle it in about six or eight weeks. Uh, but yeah, employ your angels. But you're right, Brother Ben, that's what God, the, the Holy Spirit is the power, but He uses different aspects of the kingdom of God. And one of those aspects to minister to us, like I said, did Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness, and in the garden for that matter, are angels all right he knows what we go through because obedience did not always come easy for him the writer of hebrews makes a profound statement in verse 7 that that is a reminder us when we're going through tough times he reminds us of two things think about this just because god does not answer our prayers does not mean he does not hear them okay God does not turn a deaf ear to His children. He doesn't. Okay? But then why does God not always answer our prayer? Well, I think the second thing is part of that. When we pray, we should always ask God for His will to be done. So often we pray our will to be done. It's okay to make your petitions what you, your desires are. All right. Did Jesus' prayers in the, did Jesus prayer in the garden get answered? 
But, but right after that, he said, but your will be done. Right. He started off from the, from the position of where he was at and facing what he knew he would have to face. Jesus was quite aware of what crucifixion was. It was a known form of torture and death in his day. It prob he probably seen many times people hanging on some form of cross because it, it was a regular form of punishment from the Roman uh, Empire, okay? He knew what he was going to go through. Plus, being the deity or the Son of God or part of the deity of God, he very well from, and this is hard for us to encapsulate within our, uh, our finite minds, he knew into the future. He knew, Jesus knew when he came to this earth what his death would be like to the detail. I believe that. It wasn't like, well, you're going to suffer. No, I think he knew how many times he was going to be whipped. I think he knew how many times he was going to be beaten. I think he knew he, his eyes would probably be beaten shut, swollen. I mean, I think he knew that. That's why this was such a struggle. So from the human standpoint, and I think even, well, even the second part of his prayer was from the human standpoint. He said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, God. Father. It wasn't even God, it was Father. He, and I'm not trying to say from, a, from I want to be careful how much I interject there, but from my thinking, it's, he's not doing this, but for me, I would be, pull, I would be pulling the, the daddy card. Daddy, I don't want to do this, right? I'm, I'm your son, daddy. Don't, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, after the third time, he said, but nonetheless. I think part of that was because God didn't answer the prayer. And I think he knew God wouldn't answer his prayer. He was struggling. That's what the whole point of this Sad, this, the statement is, he struggled. But, nonetheless, not my will, thy will be done. So his prayer was answered. It was the part of don't let this happen to me wasn't answered. But the ultimate prayer was, I'll let your will be done. Because that's why he came to live on this earth with us. Okay? But you're right, Brother Ben, to go back to what you said. Sometimes God's answer to our prayers is no. And to Jesus, it was, was no. No. Son, you have to go through this. You have to go through this. Okay? Um, verse 8 says that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. It's interesting. Though Jesus was God and is God, yet he learned obedience. God enthroned in heaven's glory can only experience obedience... Get this, by casting off the glory of the throne of his role, of his deity, and humbling himself as Jesus did. We don't think about that sometimes. He had to learn obedience, all right? Jesus did not pass, get this, Jesus did not pass from disobedience to obedience. We never think of that. He never disobeyed. Now, we can't fathom that because we've all disobeyed. But I want you to grasp that. This is some deep thinking about who Jesus is and what he did. He did not ever disobey. He didn't go from disobeying to learn obedience in the sense, well, I disobeyed, now I'm going to obey. No, it wasn't that at all. He learned obedience by actually learning the experience of obedience. He says, I'm just going to obey. Okay? And apart from of that learning was enduring suffering. It was through he he learned obedience by obeying the the Father and enduring the suffering that came from his obedience. Do we suffer when we obey God? If you don't, I don't know what world you're living in. Take up your cross and follow me. It's a submission. There is. There, there is. And can I say this? I struggle in obedience in my own life. And when I read this and studied this this week, and again this afternoon as I went over my notes, I felt shame. Because you know what obedience is? Can I tell you what obedience is? It's a choice, isn't it? I felt about this high when I looked at that. I said, how, how did Jesus have the ability to just obey? And I thought, and the Holy Spirit just said, He chose to. He was tempted. Was He tempted? Was he tempted in the wilderness? He was. Satan came and tempted him, but he chose instead not to give in. Do you think he was tempted in the garden? Absolutely. Why do you think he went to the Lord in prayer? I've heard people say the scripture, and I know I'm going I'm to go down and chase another rabbit hole here, but I've had this conversation with three or four people in the last three weeks. Well, the Bible says God will never put more on me than I can bear. Where does it say that? It says he will never let any temp temptation come upon you that he hasn't already made a way of escape. But temptation 
and load are two different things. Have you ever been in a place where there's more than you can handle? God allowed to happen in your life? There has been in my life. Can I say Hurricane Michael? From a perspective of a pastor? That was more than I could bear. I was trying to carry everybody's load, my load, my son's load, the church's load, your load with all the despair and the agony and all the, the destruction and just trying to get out and help people. And check. I almost had a nervous breakdown. You, pastor? Yes, me. It was more than I can bear. Do you mean to tell me that God didn't allow more on Job than he could bear? Go back and read the book of Job. Lost his kids. Lost his home, lost his property, lost his inheritance for his kids. He lost his livestock, he lost his servants. Boils on him to the point that he was miserable. His friends come along and say, his wife comes along and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, thank you, sweetheart. His friends come along and say, what have you done wrong? You don't think? Yeah, he even wondered, where are you, God? I'm paraphrasing, where are you, God? But at the end of it, God showed up and had a nice little conversation with Job. And after the conversation, what was Job's response? I know that my Redeemer liveth. The thing of it is, when, when God allows more on us, now remember, we, allow things, we put things on ourselves that God doesn't want, first of all. But if it's legitimate life, we did nothing to ask for Hurricane Michael. We've done nothing to ask. Well, I shouldn't say nothing to ask for COVID. We, I'm not sure if, if the way the world's going, if, you know, I don't want to go down that trail. Was it of God, not of God? Was it punishment, was it judgment? But the point of the matter is, it's here and it's upon us and it's still upon us. And that's a lot to bear. But that's when God, Jesus says, what? Cast your cares upon me, for I cared for you. What do you cast your cares on Him? When they get more than you can carry, more than you can bear, you cast them on Him and you trust on Him. Trust upon Him. Okay, chase the rabbit there, okay? But yeah, serving God, it can bring suffering in our lives. Think about this. Who does God obey? Who does God obey? Yeah, kind of complexing. I, I got to thinking about that. Jesus had to learn obedience. He, he learned obedience. He learned it through his suffering. Who, who does God obey? The, fact, the answer is God obeys what? Nobody. But all obey Him, don't they? Think about this. The angels. What were the angels thinking as they saw the Son of God, God and Emmanuel, God with us, who added humanity to His deity, actually live out obedience? Angels have to obey. God doesn't obey anyone, but yet Jesus, in other words, it's not part of His, his nature. Because God is God. See? But Jesus, think about it. He obeyed in the overwhelming tough challenges of His life. It was a choice. He obeyed every ordinary, every day of His ordinary life. when He faced a choice. He obeyed as a child. For him never to sin, he, that means from the age of accountability, whatever, in, in Jewish customs it was 12. But that means he always obeyed his earthly mother and his earthly stepfather and anyone over authority. In his teenage years, I don't know about you, but I was very unruly in my teenage years. How are you? Right? But in his teenage years, he obeyed. As a young man, he obeyed. He obeyed publicly. He obeyed privately when nobody was looking. That's called integrity, isn't it? He, he obeyed his father, and he obeyed the rightful human authority. He paid his taxes, didn't he not? Remember when they came asking for taxes? Peter went to him. What did he tell Peter to do? Great story. He says, go down there and catch a fish. Peter knew how to fish. And when you catch the fish, look at the fish's mouth. There's going to be a coin for yours of my taxes. When questioned by the, by the Pharisees, should you pay taxes? What was his response? Pay unto, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, under God what is God. He obeyed in every aspect of his life. I love what Spurgeon says, the old, the old uh, uh, minister. He says, obedience is a trade to which a man must be a, an apprentice to until he has learned it. You know what apprentice is, right? Someone who comes alongside the master and learns. For it is not to be known in any other way. In other words, there's no way to learn except by, come on, do, doing it, right? 
That's what he's saying. Even our blessed Lord could not fully learn obedience by the observation in others of such an obedience as he had personally to render. For there was no one from whom he could thus learn. But we do learn. We learn. How do we learn? By following Christ. See, and I don't know about you. Even, even though I'm supposed to be learned in the word, right? I'm supposed to be this theologian, but which by no means am I a theologian. I say that tongue-in-cheek. This is just revolutionary in my thinking again. It's like, wow, you're right. Is, is, that, is that elementary, if I can use that? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but it's easy to understand. Now we just have to put it into practice. And then I put this question. The question we have to ask ourselves is, am I living a life full of obedience to God? Have I learned through Christ's example to obey? That's tough, isn't it? In every aspect of our lives. Because if Jesus was, and I know I'm I'm being very legalistic, but to to make a point, because we know there's grace. Okay. But if Jesus was around today driving, that means he would never go a mile over the speed limit. That means every form of income he would claim on his taxes. See my point? I'm not throwing stones. I'm just saying if he was living in our day, that means he would obey everything he knew to obey, even to the point of suffering. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. Okay. We have a tendency to obey when it benefits us, but what about when obedience costs us? Or if we, if we obey, it will hurt. Jesus obeyed even though His obedience led to suffering. But a suffering was used to teach us, right? To teach us, right? If suffering was good enough to teach the Son of God, we must never despise it as a tool of instruction in our life. We despise suffering. But if it's a tool that teaches obedience, we should never despise it. We'd say that to our kids, maybe not quite framed that way, but wouldn't we say that to our kids? Do we discipline our children? They would call that suffering, wouldn't they? Okay. Any questions on that if we move forward? See, many Christians today... Oh, I'm almost out of time. I need to hurry up. Many Christians today look down on suffering or don't believe that Christians should suffer. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible never teaches that strong faith will keep a Christian from all suffering. It doesn't. Matter of fact, I can show you the New Testament. We won't take the time. But you look at 1 Thessalonians 3.3. Christians are appointed to affliction. We are appointed to affliction. Over in Acts 12, uh, 14, 22, it, it, is, it is through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Over in Romans 8, 17, our present suffering is the prelude to glorification. Prelude to glorification. So we are. All right. Verse 9. And once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him and was designated by God to be high priest there again, in the older order of Melchizedek. Jesus' experience of suffering and subsequent resurrection made him perfectly suited to be the author or the source or the cause of our salvation. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice. Um, you know, I've heard of people, I don't know if you ever heard of, every once in a while you hear of someone dying and having a will and leaving their inheritance to somebody and that person not getting their inheritance. What I love about Jesus is we have an inheritance and He's alive today before the Father as a high priest going to make sure that we get our inheritance. I love that about our Lord and Savior. Um, Christ's salvation is extended to all who obey Him. And in this sense, all who obey Him is used to describe those who believe on Him. In other words, you're saved, which simply assumes that believers will obey. You may not understand this, or maybe you don't receive this, but God expects you to obey. If you believe upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are, it's, it's assumed that you're going to obey Him and obey His Word. See, it is. Note that verse 10 is a repeat of 5 and 6. The emphasis is repeated. Jesus is our high priest who is called by God, not by personal ambition, but called by God according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. 
Verse 11. I don't mean to pick up there, but that's, I probably could have left that section out. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. This is what he's saying. This explains why the writer didn't go deeper into the subject. We're going to get into Michelle's today. He gets into that later. He says, you're, you're not mature enough for me to go right into this. He says, your spiritual condition, being immature, being young, uh, it, you, I can't go into the deeper subjects. So that's why he's going over this, to help them. He, he has to explain it so they can receive it. Now, the writer points out the real problem the reader is facing. They no longer try to understand. In the ESV, in the King James Version, says that they are dull of hearing. Okay? What does that mean? What does that imply? They no longer, they no longer, what does that imply? It's an implication. Come on. No longer implies what? Sorry? They used to. Yeah, this, yeah. They no longer meant that what? One time, it implies that there was a time these individuals tried to understand. He's saying, you're no longer trying to understand. Being dull of hearing is not a problem with the ears, but a problem with the heart. The hearer isn't really interested in what God has to say. They're no longer interested in what Jesus had to say. They're no longer interested in what the apostles had to say. Not wanting to hear the Word of God points to a genuine spiritual problem. And he's getting to the root of it. We're getting to it. Get ready. He's going to, he's going to talk about the milk and the meat here in just a moment. He says, listen... Why are you turning from what Christ has said as the Messiah? The reason why is because you're turning a deaf ear to what He said. Why are you ignoring what He said? You can't obey if you ignore. Matter of fact, you're going to disobey if you're not listening to what the Word tells us, what God has told us. I have found the dullness usually comes first, then the desire to give up. It's when we stop listening to the Word of God, is when we give up and we stop obeying the Word of God. And these Jewish Christians were ready to give up and go back to Judaism. He's fighting for their spiritual lives at this point. That's what this letter is all about. Okay? When the Word of God starts to seem dull, we should regard it as a serious warning sign. Now, if you're new, to, if you're new to, the, to the belief, I understand that some of this can be hard to grasp. I get that. That's why I'm taking the time to really break this down on Wednesday night, Scripture by Scripture. I, you may not grasp all of it tonight, but hopefully there will be a, 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 a beginning of understanding so that you can go back later and read it again, and, and the Holy Spirit, will, the Spirit of Truth will bring it back to you. But when you get to the point where you're just bored with it or you're dull with it, that is a warning sign. Be careful. Be careful. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Your faith is going to become weak and soon you're going to be walking in disobedience. Soon you won't be going back to Judaism. You'll be going back to your way of living, your way of doing things. See? We're bringing it today. How do we apply this today? That's it. He goes on in verse, fact, in verse 12 says, In fact, though by this time, by this time, according to the time they had been followers of Jesus, by this time, they should have been what? Much more mature than they were. He's saying by this time, as we continue, by this, they should have already been more mature. These weren't newborn babes. They should have been more mature. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers. Right? You, sh you, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The implication is not that you need to be a teacher of a Sunday school class or a teacher of a small group. He's talking about every one of us, we ought to be teachers in what? How we live our lives. As you're growing, you are the light. You are the salt. You are the preservative. You, you should be teaching others by your example, by how you're doing. Teaching your kids, teaching your spouse, teaching those in your life by how you do it. He says, you're not being teachers. You're having to be taught. I'm having to teach you and remind you again of this. Why? Because you're still on the bottle. You've gone back to the bottle. Or you never got off the bottle. You, 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 see, you see how it comes? I hope this is coming to life to you, what he's writing here. See? You need, you, you need milk, not solid food. There's an important sense in which every Christian must be a teacher because we can all help someone else along the way. We can all disciple somebody else. Verse 13, we might get done here. I'm not trying to rush on purpose, but y'all aren't being very talkative. Maybe because I'm not giving you a chance. At the end, you can ask questions. Anyone who lives on milk, verse 13 says, being still an infant is not uh, acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
Righteousness, meaning what? Right standing, being right before God. If you're still a babe, then what he's saying is you're not acquainted with the, with the process of becoming right standing with God. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use having trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. There's an important principle of the Word of God that must be realized in our lives every day, in, every, in the life of an everyday believer. Just as everything in nature, what in nature is designed to stop? Tell me something in nature that is designed not to move forward or to progress. Anything? No, the White House. <laughs> no, actually that is designed to progress and move forward, but not to be as progressive as they are. What? Can you think of anything in nature, in the natural, come on, that, is, that God designed to stand still? Time? Does time stand still? No. Does earth stand still? No. Um, does nature stop? Does plants stop? Do, I mean, matter of fact, the only thing that I could ever come up with that ever becomes stagnant is water. But what happens when water becomes stagnant? It, it's sour. It stinks, right? There's no life in it. What, why is the Dead Sea called the Dead Sea? Because everything that runs, there's no outlet. So when it runs into it, everything's, and that's why there's so much salt there. It's, it's, it's that, okay, so, it, but it's not a salt, it's not a salt water body of water by nature it's a fresh but because there's no outlet it there's nowhere for all so you you, you see you, you get the idea it also has to do with i know with the region there geographically there's a lot of salt there i get that but that it, it's dead if that's the case then the jordan river all the, the river i mean it would right so anyways where, where am i going with this nothing is designed to stop growing we're, we're designed to grow physically continually until the day we die Emotionally, we're designed to continue to grow, right? We, we develop, we should mature. Uh, everything in nature grows, and then, you know, then it dies, but then there's a continuation of the circle of life, if you want to go there, right? And so it is in the spiritual realm. Just because I'm 55, just because I'm a pastor, just because you think I should know everything about the Word of God, I don't. And I need to continue to grow. I don't want to become stuck. Stagnant, and that's a reality that we have to know in, Christ, in our Christian life. We are, we are called to mature in the Lord. A lot of that is reading His Word, coming on Wednesday nights. As, as much as this is a sacrifice, and I know for parents it is. I know for parents it is, because you've got to go home when this preacher gets done. You've got to get the kids bathed, fed again, or whatever, get them wound down to get in bed, get up the next. I get it. But this is part of growing and maturing. It's learning the Word. I guarantee you what we're talking about tonight, God will bring back to your remembrance before this week is out. I promise you that. Something you're going to face, is going to, this is going to come back, and you're going to say, ah, I'm glad I heard that. It makes sense. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit operates within His Word and within our spirits. It's not okay for a follower of Christ to remain immature in the Lord. And we'll say it again. It's not okay for you to stay where you're at in the Lord. Be immature, or if you're maturing, to stop. It's not okay. Not until the day that you... Pass from this into the next. It's not okay. You continue to grow. We must mature spiritually, which has a direct impact on our emotional maturity. Do you know that? It does. The only way to distinguish between good and evil is spiritual maturity. It is only after you begin to mature spiritually that you understand and can emotionally make the choice to deny the flesh and its desires. It's only when you mature spiritually that your emotional well-being, your emotional maturity, your, your emotional will, when you know the Word of God and you're growing spiritually, that's when you're going to start making the right choices. Your, even your emotional development is, is determined by your spiritual maturity. Think about that. And that's a deep thought when you think about it. I can tell how spiritually mature a person is by how they walk in obedience to the Word of God. It's not judging. I guess in a way it is a judging fruit, but it's, it's a reality. All right. The only way to distinguish between good and evil is spiritual maturity. Being able to make, don't you know with your choices, your kids, you want them to make the right choice, right? Do you hit your sibling or you don't hit your sibling? Where do they learn that they don't? Well, from you. Where did you learn that from? Somewhere down the line, it was taught to you. And it is, and it's biblical. Do unto others as you have them do. How many of y'all have quoted that to your kids? Treat others the way you want them to treat you. The only way your child is going to make the right choice is as they spiritually learn the Word of God and apply it and obey it. See, Think about it. I'm going to close with this. 
Think about a real baby. What do you have to do for a real baby? You've got to feed that baby, don't you? You have to dress that baby. You have to carry that baby wherever, the baby, wherever you take the baby. Uh, the baby focuses only on themselves. The universe revolves around that baby. That's what they believe. It revolves around them. Babies want what they want and cry if they don't get it. They pout, don't they? We do the same thing sometimes, I know. Babies have to be constantly reassured, don't they? Little old Jack a few minutes ago, J.W. trying to go out and work with youth. Jack had a separation, anxiety, whatever it was, was in here crying. Daddy had him back there reassuring. They have to be reassured, okay? How do we mature spiritually? By reading the Word of God to understand God's plan for our lives and then choosing to obey the Word. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. This is good. I'm, 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 I know it's getting late. I'm about to shut it down here. Just let me finish this because this, I left this for the end. J.W. Tozer says this, or said this. He's no longer with us, obviously. The amount of loafing, listen, the amount of loafing practiced by the average Christian in spiritual things would ruin a concert pianist if he follows himself doing the same things in the field of music. Hear what he says. Do I need to read that again? That's a mouthful. Listen to what he says. The amount of loafing practiced by Christians, the average Christian, in spiritual things, the loafing in the spiritual things, would ruin a concert pianist if he allowed himself to do the same thing in the field of music. Okay? It gets better. The idle puttering around that we see in church circles would end the career of a big league pitcher in one week. No scientist could, could solve his exacting problem if he took as little interest in it as the rank and file of Christians that Christians take in the art of being holy. Gets better. The nation whose soldiers were as soft and undisciplined as the soldiers of the churches would be conquered by the first enemy that attacked it. Triumphs are not won by men in easy chairs. Success is costly. How to preach. I might, and that might one these Sundays. See, may I say to you tonight that maturity costs you something. And you're gonna, there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some sacrifices if you're going to mature. It's going to mean making the choice to come on Wednesdays, to come on Sundays, to have your kids in church, to, to turn the TV off and pick up the Bible, to say no to a meal every once in a while, take that time of fasting and prayer. It does. It costs you something. There's nothing more delightful than a true babe in Jesus. Doesn't a baby bring joy to the family at first? When we see people get saved in the church, it builds excitement. But there's nothing more irritating and depressing than someone who should be mature but is no more than a babe. See, They're cute and cuddly when they're little, but as they grow older, we expect them to mature and grow up, don't we? There's nothing worse than a spoiled brat. See, yeah. So it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Discipleship is not free. Following Christ is not free. It costs you everything. Take up your cross and follow me. And we'll be preaching this Sunday on the, on the kingdom equation of what is greatness in the kingdom of God. You want to be great? How many of y'all aspire to be great? I hope you raise your hand. We all should aspire to be great. We're going to learn that, but it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Any questions? Any comments? I went kind of quick there at the end. Anybody at all? Ongoing to talk about music. Yes, sir. That's a great analogy, but I had trouble reading the word. If I just gave up the first time I read the scripture, yeah, didn't understand it. But it's like a musician or takes playing. He has to constantly. What does every one of those roles he just talked about have in common? There's a word that, that applies to Christianity. It's what we're supposed to be. It's, a, it's the root word of what we're supposed to be. Discipline, isn't it? A baseball player has to be disciplined. There's training, there's discipline. Pianist, there's discipline. A soldier has to be disciplined. A scientist has to be disciplined. We have to be disciplined. We have to be disciplined. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Listen, you have to be disciplined. Don't turn your back. Don't turn your back on the word. Don't give in. Don't go back to your old way. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But what's the win in it all? What's the reward in it all? See, and, there, and that's where you have to, any decision you make in life, any bad or good decision, you have to balance the pros and the cons, what's good, what's, what's going to come of this if I do or don't do this. But never hesitate to walk in obedience to God. Don't turn your back on His Word or Him. Amen? 
Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, God, I, don't, I can't read the minds of your people, but Lord, I know that I'm energized tonight with this chapter in Hebrews, Lord, and how much it spoke to me this week as I was studying it, Lord. And I thank you for the anointing. There's an anointing on this, God. And I pray for those here, those who may be listening on our podcast, uh, Father, that Lord, allow the word to come alive in their life, Lord. Help them go back and look at this chapter again in their personal study time and just apply. Now that we understand the background of the high priest from, from the Jewish perspective, Lord, allow us, God, help us to understand it from our background, from what we have transitioned from in our own lives. So, Lord, that we don't be tempted. We're not tempted to fall back in that lifestyle, but, Lord, to be disciplined, God, to become mature, Lord, to, to take, the, take the bottle out of our, our mouths. There is a sense that as, as newborn babes, as Peter says in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, that we should desire the sin still miracle of the Word. But God, as we mature, Lord, we need to put the milk down and eat, eat the meat, God. And I pray that for us tonight. Lord, that you help us to, to desire the meat of the Word, to go beyond just the surface reading of it, God, and to stop and ask questions. What... Thank you for joining our podcast. Here at Bear Creek AG, our goal is to help others know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Have a great week.